Welcome to Season 2 of Three Decades of Tragedy, A History of the Thirty Years' War. Sorry about the delay, there's a bunch of real-life stuff got in the way, but we're now back. And I have a new logo now. I mean, it's not much adding the actual name of the podcast to the image, but I'm happy. And... Since it's been so delayed, we're just going to sort of hop right in and I'll get onto other stuff after the episode. But once again, as a reminder, the next several episodes will probably be a background in the lead up to Denmark during the war, because that's not really a spoiler. So without further ado, let's begin. So like I mentioned last time, Frederick was given the nickname the Winter King in the aftermath of the rebellion. And like I mentioned before, he fled from place to place. Bethlehem also, seeing that the cause was lost, he started to open talks with the Imperials to see if there's a diplomatic solution. The Silesians, one of the areas that were under the control of the Protestants slash rebels last time, they surrendered, seeing that there was no hope of victory, and the Saxons were sort of actively attacking them. So there was no other course but to surrender. It was smart on their part. Also, some commanders, like Mansfield, were still actively fighting or weren't out of the game yet. So they still had troops and stuff. But seeing that White Mountain lost, a lot of them lost a bit of their hearts. So people like Mansfield, in particular, agreed to temporary truces of up to six months to reevaluate the situation. Frederick, who was still technically the leader of the rebels and Bohemia and all that, was told and suggested by people like the King of Denmark, King James of England, that whole deal, to surrender. Or at least accept terms with Ferdinand considering that Bohemia was lost, which was the center of their cause. One of the things that I noticed, and I kind of read from these separate pieces, was there was a chance for a possible peace come out of this, which would have kept the Thirty Years' War from happening if there had been any sort of permanent not fighting. The other worry at the time was Spain and the Netherlands were both gearing up back to fight considering their 12-year truce was coming to an end. So the Imperials wanted those wars to be ended because to free resources, especially Spain, and some of the rebels didn't necessarily want to be dragged into that fight. However, Frederick did not want to compromise and he wouldn't make peace with Ferdinand without certain conditions. They included confirming his confederation of states, which would probably include his crown, full religious liberty for Protestants, and Ferdinand would assume all of Bohemia's debts and refund the Palatine military expenses throughout the entire war. If any of you guys know how peace treaties work, and especially being on the losing end, this is not something you can impose on someone when you're the losing side of it, considering a lot of it was expensive or just would be, why would you take that if you're winning? So, in response, Ferdinand put an imperial ban on Frederick, Anhalt, Hohenlohe, and other rebel commanders who were still willing to fight. And as a reminder, an imperial ban was basically officially made them outlaws, which meant they could be hunted down and returned for money, their lands could be taken, and their titles could be taken, that sort of deal. Unfortunately, this hardened Frederick's inflexibility, which meant the only course forward was fighting, even if it was pretty much one-sided on the imperial side. After traveling through places like Berlin and other cities, he eventually found his way to the Hague, which is in the Netherlands, and he found little support, but he was given lodgings there till sort of the end of his life, though as time went on, he would get less and less money from the Dutch and from England, because remember, his wife was the daughter of King James. By the time the English Civil War started in 1639, money had become very low. On other commander's fronts, Anhalt was in northern Germany as a representative of the rebels, but by this point, he was tired and was worn out by White Mountain and the losses there. And he was also worried about his son that got captured in the battle. Like I mentioned, he was on one of the flanks who held out for a while, but eventually got defeated. Eventually, he would get him back in 1624, but that is in a couple years. Considering at this point, we're effectively in 
early 1621. So around winter slash early spring 1621. Anhalt was then given asylum by Christian IV of Denmark on the condition that he not do any sort of court intrigue or anything like that. And on the same year when he got a son back, 1624, he also got a pardon for his son especially and himself and worked to try to keep the Imperials from sequestering his land and taking stuff, which he did on top of trying to just reduce the consequences of the war on his own lands till his death in 1630. Hohenlohe, who I knew really background on, but I don't, it's not necessary. Hohenlohe was as one of the higher-up commanders. He got a pardon in 1623 thanks to his family and political connections. Uh, that'll be a, a common thing of people bribing or paying money to not be hunted anymore as rebels. It was it was nobility. Other officers, in many cases, would leave people like Anhalt or Hohenlohe because they saw better opportunities or more secure prospects with other people. On top of many officers just had to deal with and didn't want to deal with uh, the Imperials and the Spanish anymore just getting on their case. So Anhalt and people like Hohenlohe were basically left with older supporters leaving very little momentum in, in the rebellion. The lack of personnel change meant that the people fighting for the cause of Bohemia really much lacked direction and support, and Frederick couldn't really assert his authority, which led to long-term issues of planning, getting support, supplies, getting momentum going, that whole deal. There also was debate on what was the path forward for them, what type of deal would they make, that sort of thing. Uh, there are people like Chief Justice Rustorf, who was a supporter of the rebels, and he wanted a full restoration of Bohemia as a kingdom, as in when Frederick was in charge of it. While others pushed for English mediation to help Frederick get his status as elector back. Well, it wouldn't be a complete victory. It would be, hey, Frederick at least isn't there, so he's at least politically viable. Probably not, but, you know, there you go. The propaganda that came out of Bohemia and the Palatinate was Frederick was made to be an unjustly exiled king who was abused by people above him and just wanted to make things more fair. Uh, one of the comparisons actually was David and Goliath with him as David and Goliath as the Imperials. One of the funny effects of this actually was that Elizabeth, uh, his wife, was romanticized by many people as like the loyal good queen, that sort of deal. On top of many who weren't there saw this whole rebellion as like a adventure and you know, a fighting against the unjust Habsburgs, which, in, which funny enough, got many Englishmen to join up with the Protestant cause. Not as like a country, but on an individual level. So sort of in short, the leadership was divided. Many of them were either not involved or doing their own thing at the moment. There was very little momentum or support. Their king was basically trapped in the hog, hiding from the Imperials. So the rebellion was still technically going, but it was basically done, at least in my books. And the other big blow to the rebellion would be the Protestant Union came to an end a year or two after after that battle. By White Mountain, the Protestant Union was already in bad shape. People were leaving. People weren't giving as much money. That sort of deal. It came down to a few factors. One, many disagree with Frederick leaving Catholics alone as long as they pay taxes and the like because they were caught up in religious fervor. And they were Protestants, so it was like, why are you leaving the Catholics un unmolested? Others found the utility of the Union was not as effective as they thought it would be. They thought it would be more funding, more security among the Protestant princes, but unfortunately it didn't really play out that way. Another strategic move that Ferdinand made was he announced his bans around the time of the next meeting of the Union, which put pressure on them and sort of told them the consequences of continuing to resist. Many of these Protestant princes and leaders were willing to mediate with the crown individually in order to keep the war from heading to their lands and disrupting their security. Because one of the issues was 
Spinola, who was one of the leaders of the Union. He agreed to the Treaty of Mines, and that if Ferdinand could get Frederick to agree, they would remove their troops from the Lower Palatinate, which would lessen the pressure on the Imperials. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen, but hearing as what I'm about to say next, it didn't matter. On May 14th, the Union Charter was not renewed, which officially put an end to the Protestant Union and dispersed them. The Union, while it did help boost the Protestant cause at the beginning, was ultimately too fractured an organization to really compete with people like the Catholic League, who was very well organized. One of the big issues was that the leaders of the Protestant Union had divergent ideas, beliefs, etc., and many of them had different religions. Some of them were Calvinists, some of them were Utraquists. It There was a divide, so there was an inherently religious divide among them, which made it harder to come with a, a set course of action. The other big issue was many representatives, especially smaller ones, only joined for local security in order to protect their lands from encroaching Catholic threat. So with the loss of security from the rebels in Bohemia, they saw very little reason to stick around. Before I conclude, I'm going to read a section about what happened in the aftermath of the rebellion on the more personal and non-political level. It's not a very pretty sight, but I think it's a good way to capture the chaos and brutality of this war. The people ask to surrender, as they should, but it comes to nothing. The troops burn up cities and villages and rob and kill horribly. At Pilsen, the enemy came in and did not even spare the little children or the pregnant women. He took possession of whomever he encountered on the lanes and streets. Twenty-seven powerful fires were seen around Pilsen in one night. There was great misery. The prophecy was truly fulfilled all in the lands of Bohemia. The prophecy, for contextually, is, is the end of days. Now it came much closer to us, and we heard that they were at Saz, which began to burn. This lay five miles from Marienburg. Many people began to weep and confess, for in the villages in the, in the night, they burn up everything with great force, and likewise people who ran from their beds were thrown into the fire and burned. O Christian men, behold the distress. People have to abandon their own goods with their many supplies. Some simply run away, forced to abandon wife and child. Troops seize children from the breast, murder them unjustly, and their parents likewise. They murder them terrifyingly, cause great misery and lamentations. Some hope to hide themselves under the hay or straw in sheds or in barns, and they, and they lay there still, starving and even being burned. Oh, weep and pray alike, you people, at how they carry on with the female sex, especially with the maidens whom they rape and abuse, that one is horrified by it. Some beautiful women were forced to swear to serve the soldiers and turn money over to them. Their husbands are forced to lose their lives, even right before the eyes of their wives. Also sold among the soldiers, and very cheaply, are wives and maids in equal number. They are greatly needlessly prostituted, while their little children are forced to wait upon them. Some people sent supplies away to Germany, to Marienburg, but the soldiers have already blockaded the past. They are, are in greater need, also in danger of losing their lives. So, well, there is a little bit of perspective of, oh, look how bad they are. There's a truth there of just the underlying brutality of these soldiers after this rebellion were not being, were not being, well, nice to anyone. There were murder, rape, pillaging, blockading supplies so people starved. That was just the thing that happened. And many of these men were mercenaries, so they weren't even, like, from this place. They were just soldiers for hire. So I just wanted you, you guys to get a clue of, just from a more personal account, of how brutal on the ground this war was to people. Especially just if you lived in a village. Sorry for the depressing end note, but thank you for listening in. Remember to check out the social media in the description. And you can email me at 3decot at gmail.com if you want to contact me. Or contact me on my website, which will be in the box. I do have a Patreon if you wish to support me. And next week, as a little sideline slash build up to the next stuff, we will talk about the resumption of the Spanish and Dutch War, which was called the Eighty Years' War, 
But we're not really going to get too in-depth. It's just a section that's related to the Thirty Years' War. See you guys next time.